Hey, everybody, it is time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, And today, um, I'm really happy to welcome back to the show, after a hiatus of 10 years, the novelist Kazuo Ishiguro. He is uh, well known for books like A Pale View of Hills, An Artist of a Floating World, The Remains of the Day, When We Were Orphans, The Unconsoled, and uh, Never Let Me Go. The last time he visited the show, uh, it was to talk about Never Let Me Go. And now he's back with his first novel in a decade. It's called The Buried Giant. And uh, it is getting a lot of attention since any new book from Kazuo Ishiguro is a publishing event. And uh, the reviews have been admiring, uh, but there's also mixed in with all of that a lot of befuddlement because a lot of people were surprised to see an esteemed literary writer like uh, Kazuo Ishiguro come out with a book that could be described as a fantasy. Uh, Inasmuch as it is set in post-Arthurian England, uh, it has some ogres, some knights, some pixies, and a dragon. And uh, if that sort of stuff makes it a fantasy, well, okay. But it is certainly not like any other fantasy you're likely to read. In place of the usual magic, there is a feeling of disenchantment. And in place of the escapist adventure, the characters are confronted with some inescapable facts of life. And uh, if typical fantasy is focused on a kind of pre-adolescent or adolescent romanticism, things like youthful conquest and rites of passage and dreams of heroic individualism, uh, this book is adamantly adult in nature. Uh, The concerns are really those of late adulthood. The protagonists are an elderly couple. There is an elderly knight, Sir Gawain, the last of King Arthur's round table. And even the dragon is in her dotage. And despite all of the fantastical-sounding circumstances, Ish, as he is known to his friends and family, is intent above all else on psychological realism. I had a kind of a little rule which kind of controlled my world. I thought to myself, if the people living in a community like that, that, that's to say the pre-scientific place, you know, they don't have the kind of explanations that we do, and they they know relatively little about the world beyond their little community. So there's kind of huge stretches of wild, dark land between their little settlement and the next one. It would be perfectly reasonable and intelligent to believe in certain supernatural forces. You want, you actually want explanations to kind of big things that happen to you in life. You know, if somebody dear to you has become ill, you want an explanation. The, the medical one that we have today, or the scientific one, isn't available to these people. So it seems to me absolutely reasonable that they would reach for kind of explanations that we today would call superstitious. So in that world, it seems to be fine to say, I did actually think two months back there was a pixie moving around in the darkness of our room in the dead of night. And I, I should have done something about it at the time, but I didn't. Uh, and but that pixie brought the illness and gave it to my wife, and that's why she's ill. And you know why didn't I do something about it at the time? Because I knew that was a pixie. It's kind of like saying, you know, I should have persuaded my wife to go and see the doctor you know, back then. These kind of supernatural creatures or or these fantasy creatures, they're there as genuine expressions, genuine adult expressions of of big human fears, hopes, longings. Um, so my rule was that if it was reasonable for the people of that time to believe in these things, I would allow them to exist literally in my fictional world. What was the germ of this story? What was the beginning impulse that set you searching for the right setting and that ultimately led you to this thing that 
we could call fantasy or fable? For a long time, I was looking for a way to write about um, societal memory, you know, how a nation might remember things and how a nation might sometimes think it's better off just forgetting things. Now, this was because I was aware that I'd gone quite a long way writing about individual memory and people struggling with their own memories of their their personal history, saying, do I really want to look at what I did back then? If I don't, how can I assess who I am? How can I know who I am? But, but it's painful to look at everything. So a book like The Remains of the Day, typically, or you know, some of my other books, that's what they are. You're inside one mind struggling with this question, do I really want to remember all this, or do I want to keep it buried? But I, for years I've wanted to expand that to ask that same question of of a community or a nation you know, th- throughout history and we, we can think of many instances in you know recent history there are moments when it's perhaps better although it might seem morally culpable there it's sometimes the best thing to do to just bury certain memories for the sake of social cohesion for the sake of stopping another cycle of violence just so that a certain nation or community can just just hold together during a very vulnerable and turbulent time. And we can all think of instances where there has been some sort of uneasy peace that's held for a generation or two, and some kind of communal or societal memory of uh, hatred and violence from a generation ago has been deliberately reawakened Mm. To turn one group onto another with with you know, startling viciousness, as we saw saw in Bosnia or Rwanda, so I, I always wanted to to think about you know societal memory, and I w- wanted to look at you know, how it differed from uh, individual memory, uh, not just differed in a technical sense, but uh, and of course that's interesting in itself. You know where do the memory banks of a nation lie? You know where, who controls them? You know, is it the media? Is it museums? Is it school books? Is it popular culture? Uh, I think that question is getting more and more complicated. You know, how, how do people have an idea of where their society came from just a generation or two generations ago? Never mind, you know, 10 or 20 generations ago. That's the battle. The battle for the memory of you know, who, who you were is really a battle of what you as a nation is going to do next. I was also interested in asking that question about remembering and forgetting um, as applied to to a marriage, and by implication, any kind of a long-term important relationship. And it, it could be between a, a parent and a child or between siblings. But in this case, I was interested in a couple who have been married for a long time. I think the role of shared memories in a relationship like that is fascinating. But the same kind of questions apply how much do they want to remember about the about the many years they spent together? Let's look at societal memory first. And you're reminding me of the time in the 90s when Yugoslavia started crumbling and uh, turning to fighting after years of peace under Tito. When that happened, I asked a friend of mine who grew up in one of the ex-Yugoslavian republics, why? You guys got along for decades after World War II under communism, and then in short order, were slitting each other's throats. And he, who had grown up there but was living in the United States and was not part of the fighting, thankfully, said, well, we did get along, but our grandparents wouldn't let us forget. They reminded us of what the other side had done all the time. And there was also music. There were songs. 
that were reminding us all the time. Two ways in which memory of atrocities, of grievances, of hatreds was kept smoldering under the surface all those years. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating that, you know, and, and we know in situations of like chronic sectarian conflict, as we had in, say, Northern Ireland for generations, you actually have a kind of ritualized remembering of uh, old battles from centuries ago, you know, mm. marching season and all these things. Mm-hmm. You, um, you just keep hammering it into the younger generation, you know, uh, generation after generation. But now today, you know, I suppose the memory banks have got very complicated because we have social media. Um, and I think popular culture, uh, you say songs there, I think popular culture in general, I think has a massive part to play in these things. But just to go back to your example there of um, the old Yugoslavia disintegrating, you mentioned that you know, they seem to coexist peacefully under Tito. Now, I think this this is very significant. You know, sometimes peaceful coexistence is enforced by a strong regime. It's not one that's been uh, brought about through consensus or negotiation. Often what we see in those situations is that the hatreds are preserved like they're in a freezer you know, beneath the surface. And I think there's a contrast between that kind of apparent peace and, say, say what the South Africans have tried to achieve since apartheid, where yeah, through the truth and reconciliation process, they, they've really tried to uh, to bring about some sort of consensus and avoid conflict and, and civil war. And suppression and forgetting. Yeah. They've tried to balance, I think, you know, the, the need to address the injustice and outrage with the recognition that you know, they've got to hold together as a, as a community. Uh, to some extent, yeah, I, I would say Europe after the Second World War it's miraculous if you think about what Europe was like in the first half of the 20th century and the great peace in which certainly Western Europe has lived in, you know, in the second half. And that seems to me a, a peace that was won through proper reconciliation. So I think it, it, it has all the hallmarks of a peace that can hold. I mean, no one can imagine now, you know, war breaking out between France and Germany, say. But in the first half of the 20th century, n- nobody could not imagine it, you mm. know, but breaking out. So the situation that I've taken in, in my novel is one where there seems to be a peace. And actually people are learning to, just because they're human beings, they're learning to actually rather like each other. You know. But it is a peace that's been enforced. A strong arm regime has enforced it. And in order to maintain it, uh, this regime has actually also enforced a kind of amnesia. The only right. way that the peace can be held is if people just forget about the atrocities that were committed in order to create the stability one generation back. And specifically atrocities committed by King Arthur and his forces, the Britons, on their adversaries, the Saxons. And, uh, I mean, how much do you want me to give away, Ish? No, I, I don't mind. I don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And the, and the agent of this forgetting uh, is a, uh, a dragon that's been charmed by now-dead Merlin in such a way that its breath spreads like a mist through the country and causes this generalized amnesia. So you have um, this elderly couple, Axel and Beatrice, uh, the heroes of the book, really, who are seeking to restore their own memories because they believe not only that their love hinges on it, but proof of their love come this passage that sooner or later one or both of them will have to make across some water to an island ferried by a boatman 
I guess we can all assume that's death, right? Yeah, that's the <laughs> usual kind of stuff that goes around death. <laughs> and, and the rumor is, is floating around that couples like them will be questioned. And if they're found to be sufficiently devoted to each other, if their love is found to be sufficiently strong and pure, especially by means of them both talking about shared memories, then they might be allowed to stay together in the afterlife or on this island. They believe that memory might be the key to everlasting connection. Yeah, they would accept death. They, they don't want separation. Which is true of many of us, I think, yeah? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think many of us are ridiculously romantic. If we find love, and it's hard enough to find, I think we think, well, it's so special. Surely, you know, we deserve some kind of special concession, even from death. Uh, and we, we may, th in our more rational moments, think that's nonsense. But, I, you know, I, I think our heart often kind of wants to make us believe that, you know, we can at least win a, a deferral or concession. Mm. You know, there's something special. So they live with that kind of hope. They've heard a rumor that... Um, if only they can prove that their love is very special. They won't escape death, but they won't have to separate. The memories become crucial there because um, they get this idea that uh, they'll need their me shared memories to prove how much they're devoted to each other. That's part of the test. So that's the way it's set up. You know, For this couple, it looks like it's very important to get rid of this amnesiac mist uh, at the larger political level in a very troubled land with with people coexisting uneasily. That question is a more difficult one. If you get rid of that amnesiac mist, does it, does it mean that um, civil war and violence will erupt again? And they likely will. Yeah, and it sounds like a kind of very mythical place, but I have actually taken something that's kind of based on quasi-history. No one really knows what happened in those years in Britain. You know, after the Romans left, when the you know, Roman Empire withdrew from Britain around 410 AD, and the time the Anglo-Saxons came to completely dominate the country, so that there's hardly any trace of the indigenous Britons. That, that's around 490 AD. So, so we're talking about an 80-year period. No historian agrees what happened then, but a lot of people think there was some kind of a genocide, or at least what you might call an ethnic cleansing today. And the invading or the immigrants, you know, who are the Anglo-Saxons. So the, they grew in number, and at a certain point, they, they wiped out the uh, indigenous Britons. And so that's the kind of... Uh, my, my story takes place on the eve of this ethnic cleansing or, or genocide that turned Britain eventually into England. So your book certainly floats the, the hypothesis that forgetfulness is really essential to healing or old wounds not getting inflamed. But for this couple, on the other hand, they have enshrined memory as maybe the essence of love, shared memory. It's funny because I was reading this book and I, an incident happened to me uh, not long before where someone very important to me had forgotten something we did together long ago that was very precious for me. And it cut me to the quick that I was the only one who still had this memory. It felt like a little death, you know? So I, I confess, I, I guess I have the same feeling that this couple has. But the book, your book, The Buried Giant, doesn't necessarily support that idea either. I'm not coming down on one side or the other. You know, I'm not saying that it's always better to remember or it's always better to forget. I'm just saying it's, a, it's one of the big struggles that we yeah. live with. 
whether at the individual level, at the relationship level, or at the societal level. It's very hard to get, get it right. Even at the societal level, I'm not coming down on the side of saying it's usually better to forget because then you'll avoid war. I don't think that's the case. You know, I mean, if you, if you look at a lot of um, apparently you know, very stable countries at the moment, I, I think a lot of um, tension and uh, unease you know, comes from the fact that big, dark things haven't been properly dealt with. You know, they, they've been buried successfully. Um, maybe they need to come out more into the open. I mean, it's, it's kind of very presumptuous or kind of bad manners of me sitting in the United States to talk about the United States. But since I'm here, you know, um, I know that at the moment, a lot of people in this country are, are very concerned about you know, the situation in Ferguson. There seem to be you know, repeatedly these kind of outbreaks of anger and resentment about the relationship of you know, the, the African-American community to the rest of the nation. I heard somebody on the radio in Britain just before I came out here, an American person actually suggesting that maybe there should be a formalized truth and reconciliation process, such as the one that that took place in South Africa at the end of apartheid, to try and actually bring these issues out into the open. Some people would argue that maybe the um, U.S. and nation you haven't looked at um, slavery and segregation enough. You know, other people argue that you've been looking at it too much, and um, maybe it's better to bury it more. Um, why create anger and resentment amongst the whole new generation of younger African Americans? Just bury it, and maybe everyone will just kind of get on now. You know? Well, if there so were it's, no, it's a really difficult thing. You know, you can say I'm, I'm, I'm not here as a visitor. I'm not. I'm not wanting to comment on one side or the other. I'm just pointing out there, are very, there seems to be arguments on both sides. Oh, please, yeah. don't be so polite. Let yeah. us know what you really think. I, I, I wouldn't <laughs> presume. <laughs> I'm just, I think it's very difficult. But the answer can't be just to bury everything because it keeps coming back. Mm-hmm. It doesn't stay buried. Oh, I mean, yeah. yes. I mean, race relations in America are full of all kinds of tensions and inequalities, even if you fully acknowledge slavery, you still have to deal with the legacy that is alive and well in in current circumstances. And, you know, that takes me back to your book in a way. Your uh, couple, Axel and Beatrice, have forgotten almost everything of their past together. But what is there for real is feelings. And those feelings themselves um, contain the residue of all that experience. So is remembering things in detail... Again, I'm talking about in the life of a couple, perhaps, is remembering specific incidents, is capturing the past and sort of preserving it. Is that really what matters? They're not sure. You see, their fear is that it may be like, in fact, you know, Beatrice actually says this at one point, when they're sheltering from a rainstorm under a tree on their journey, she expresses the fear that um, just as what's happening now is that you know, the, the raindrops are falling on them, but the actual sky has cleared. She wonders if the feeling of love that they have for each other, although it seems very strong now, once the memories have gone, is that feeling rather like the, you know, the raindrops falling from the branches above them when the, the sky itself has stopped raining? Is it inevitable that their love would just kind of dry up and fade if it's cut off from that past history? And you, you took a very... Uh, uh, a piercing and poignant example there of, of you know you, you said of a friend of yours you had you thought you had a shared memory you know it wasn't quite as shared as you thought and and that that's a startling and and um, a disturbing moment and you can imagine what that's like if it, you're talking about the key relationship 
in your life. You know? So, um, and I think it, that's a real fear. It, it's interesting that whenever someone writes a memoir, a family memoir, you know, the, the family seems to just disintegrate into <laughs> fighting because, precisely for these reasons, you know, people think they share memories and they realize that the memories aren't nearly as shared as they thought that's a really good you know, point some people are completely written out <laughs> of memories that they thought they were absolutely central to and so on you know everything's remembered differently and and so the bonds that that link a family uh, are distorted and destroyed and yeah, of course that's true of a society a larger society as well yeah, yeah, I mean, Axel and Beatrice try to trust in the strength of the emotion that they feel for each other at that moment, but they can't, they can't help asking the question, so what's this emotion based on? Is, surely it has to have a foundation, and without a past, without these precious shared memories to refer back to, um, to nourish the, 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 this feeling, can it, can it last? Is it, is it simply like a, a little residue that's, that's going to fade? You know, some of these themes um, remind me of our conversation 10 years ago about your previous novel, Never Let Me Go, which is also very much concerned with the way we humans weave a kind of protective shell for ourselves based to some extent on self-deception. In the case of Never Let Me Go, it's deception about our impending doom, right? How we carry on knowing that, you know, the end is not that far away. And these themes of protection, self-protection, and self-deception just seem to be your special territory. Well, it, it certainly used to be. Um, maybe I'm slightly less interested in individual kind of self-deception these days. I mean, books like The Remains of the Day were, were all about, you know, people struggling with, with the urge to deceive themselves. It, it was a struggle between, I suppose, the urge for, for self-deception and the urge to see the truth. And I, I think these are warring emotions and, and tendencies in all, in all of us as individuals. Mm. Maybe that same struggle exists um, in a marriage or in, in, in a society, you know. In this particular case, I suppose I, I've kind of articulated it more as um, simple remembering and forgetting. But mm -hmm. I guess behind that phrase, you know, remembering and forgetting, I suppose is implied self-deception or having the courage to see, see the truth starkly. Well, also I say another theme that's woven in here is uh, self-protection. Um, the way we frail humans erect you know, some kind of structure in our lives that we feel might allow us to, in, in the most extreme case, survive death somehow, last uh, matter, you know, in the world. And in this case, that institution is, one of those institutions is coupledom, marriage. There are so many poignant scenes in the book, and uh, one is when these two people who go on a journey, by the way, to uh, to find their son, to find their past, to restore their memories, are uh, trekking through the countryside, both getting on in years and at one point, they're going through a particularly dicey stretch in which they only say to each other, and I'm going to quote from your book, are you still there, Axel? To which he would respond, still here, princess. Are you still there? Even the dragon has a companion, like a hawthorn bush in the middle of this crater where it lives, this desolate mm -hmm. place. These things really concern you personally, I think. In what way? What do you mean? Well, you must think a lot about these things in your own life. I, I do, yeah. But, I mean, the, the coupledom, let's just go, go to the coupledom yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
yeah, I mean, you're talking about mortality and how we protect ourselves from, from this knowledge about, about mortality. Or uh, meaninglessness. That's or another meaninglessness, scary yeah, thing. Yeah. yeah. Mm. I think in something like Never Let Me Go, although there's no kind of practical solution to their fate, as there might have been in a different kind of story, that, that there isn't like an escape uh, hatch or something, that, that there isn't a vehicle by which they can get away from the land where they're doomed to be organ donors. You know, they, they can't run away. Um, in another sense, they, uh, the characters devise all kinds of ways in which, in some psychological way, they think they can, um, they can get the better of their fate. And in, in Never Let Me Go, once again, the, 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 rather like in A Buried Giant, there is a kind of a rumor or hope that um, if they can prove, two people can prove that they love each other enough, mm-hmm. you know, that they deserve some kind of special treatment from even mortality and death, mm-hmm. you know, that, that they can win some kind of concession, because surely it's so special. And it's it's almost like a weird instinct, you know, that, that hope that love can somehow trump death mm-hmm. in some kind of way. That's not so much a a serious um, proposition as a kind of a hope, but that's something that's that's often there. In Never Let Me Go, some people try to um, leave some kind of artworks or some kind of stuff behind or work that they've done that, by which they'll be remembered. So the sense that yes, people remember you for whatever little things you've achieved and you can remain in, in the memories of people dear to you after you've gone. All of these things, I suppose, are, are ways in which we try to balance the, the, the knowledge that we're, you know, we're mortal and things will come to an end. We try and find other ways in which we might be immortal, at least in the metaphorical mm-hmm. sense. Children? So, so, yeah, exactly. Children, uh, very importantly. Um, and so um, in my novels, yeah, I mean, I usually set up a situation where, um, you know, death seems to be unavoidable. But then I, I like to show my characters trying to construct these ideas in which they might be able to win a little concession in which death will not be nearly as lonely and uh, fearful. And these other kinds of ways in which immortality might be achieved. When did you first start thinking about mortality? Do you remember? I think I started to think about mortality in a real way when my grandfather died uh, when I was about 15. Of course, I mean, like, like all children, I knew about death. And it's one of those strange things, I think. The adult world has a very clever way of informing children, young children, incrementally about death, so that at any given point they're not really capable of understanding the, the, the information that's been given to them, but they understand it in a kind of literal way without understanding, but they're too young to understand the emotional force of it. So, so that most of us grow up kind of knowing about it, and, but not really knowing about it at any kind of deeper emotional level. It's a it's a very skillful kind of uh, incremental education that most of us get about death if we're lucky, you know. Uh, and by and large, you know, I grew up lucky. You know, nobody very close to me died. But um, uh, for the first five years of my life, when I was living in Nagasaki, my father was away most of the time in the West working as a scientist, and so my kind of uh, male parental figure was my grandfather, and we had a very close relationship. And when I left to come to Britain or go to Britain, um, I always imagined as a child we were about to return in, in a year or two. Um, so I always imagined that, you know, I'll be reunited with my 
grandfather. You know, he he was a kind of a big person in my life. And when I was fifteen, um, I remember getting a phone call. I didn't actually get the phone call. I was up in the bedroom, and I I remember hearing my mother take the phone call downstairs in the hall. And this was the news that my grandfather had died. He just died of old age, you know. And I suppose, as the years had gone on, that I knew that there was a likelihood of this, but.、Um, I don't think I was I was ever quite ready for the idea that、um, I would never see him again. You know, we'd never said goodbye. You know, and so I think that's the first time that I, I realised that you know what what actually kind of death, even though it was a kind of a a good natural you know peaceful death or somebody in old age, that's when I first sensed what what it actually meant. You know, that, what what death could take away. And so I think that's the first time I became aware of mortality. And I suppose, from a selfish kind of a fifteen-year-old's point of view, you know, I didn't just see the sadness or whatever of you know a guy dying in old age. I, I saw a whole, whole world、uh, for me, you know, kind of disappearing. The world I was, I might have returned to, had kind of had vanished. I mean, he he stood for for all of that, you know, Nagasaki and my childhood and. Um, so, I suppose that、uh, you know it's a case of a、uh, uh, one person's death becoming a kind of an emblem、uh, of something much larger as well. I have a feeling it's around then that、um, I probably became much more aware of death and mortality than maybe a lot of my、uh, my friends of the same age. When I think about the buried giant and never let me go, it feels like you are confronting the kinds of consolations and the kinds of evasions that we. Erect in the face of that truth, and truths like it, and you're unsparing in a way. I mean, these aren't sentimental, comforting books. These aren't reassuring books. In the end, they're not reassuring in the sense that there's no practical escape from from the fate, you know, of mortality. In both, never let me go and, and bereavement. Yeah, and bereavement. I mean, there's separation and death at the end of these books, but. But in another way, I feel they're they're quite cheerful books. <laughs> <laughs> well, Because, well, some people have remarked that this book, the new one,、uh, the Buried Giant, has an air of resignation, of melancholy running through it, I, I, and that that came through for me. Okay, good, good, good.、Uh, yeah, uh. Of exhaustion, of maybe because the key figures in it are old; they are near the end. Yeah.、Mm. Mm. Uh, and many of them don't make it. <laughs> well, there are younger characters as well, you know. Who, who, right. Who There's not look... a lot of comfort in their future. No,、either. no. They're looking at you know <laughs> hatred and、yes. ethnic violence, and、yeah. know, can they steal themselves for this war? Right.、Um, can they hate their enemy enough to fulfill the function in the in the civil war that's coming? You know, these are the kind of questions the younger people are facing. But、um, when I say, you know, I don't think these books are unremittingly bleak. I say that because my focus is on the on the more positive aspects of human nature. Their their fate is inevitably sad, but that's not news. I mean, we all know about mortality and you know the fact that we have a limited lifespan, and that in all likelihood, however much we cling to each other,、um, we we are going to be forced to separate at death. There is a kind of a, a lonely passage that each of us will make. I might be wrong about that, but、mm-hmm. you, I mean the likelihood is that that、mm-hmm. is the case.、Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, in these books, in contrast to my earlier books, when I tended to focus on the weakness of human nature,、mm-hmm. 
and the failings of human nature. I, I think in these latter books that, that have this sad backdrop of mortality, I think the relationships um, in my books are, are pretty positive ones. People are trying very hard to be decent to each other. Yeah, in, in this in this book, you know, <laughs> this couple. I mean, it's a it's a triumph. You know, they they've managed to stay together for decades, and and they're they're determined to stand by each other right to the end. You know, oh yeah, so, they're heroes uh, in this book, mm-hmm. I think. So so I like to think that there's a celebratory aspect to both this book and Never Let Me Go. When people are faced with uh, knowledge of their mortality, often you know the decent parts of them become emphasized. You know, they, they don't re- become obsessed with you know, the career ladder or accruing more material possessions. They, they worry about things like, you know, have they properly declared their love to the person that they really love? Have they forgiven where they need to forgive? Have they put right things that they did to, wrongly to people that they care about? I mean, th- these kinds of things become very important. And so I, I kind of think these books, although they have a sad backdrop, I think they're kind of... Uh, they're quite cheerful about human beings. You said they're quite decent, which is true. They're also quite decorous in The Buried Giant, to an extreme. Even people about to kill each other in combat are very courteous, very very respectful, uh, gentlemanly in the case of uh, the two men going into mortal combat. By and large, people are you know, exercising the utmost in politeness throughout this book. Now, is that concealing the deeper ugliness of real... Uh, human uh, violence and some of the real transactions that go on? Or do you think of that politeness as being a good thing, that that keeps things better than they might otherwise be? I think that that politeness is a sign of something good. As I've got older, I I like to focus on the, uh, at the personal level, you know, the the positive side of human nature, even though the the human condition, as I portray it, in which these people are caught is, is often violent or tragic or sad. And so for these warriors on either side of the divide, uh, you know, their, their missions conflict, and so they have to fight. But it's not personal. You know? and, and so I think there is a kind of sense of hope there that uh, it, it's quite difficult for individuals to really hate in these situations. They, they admire each other because, because they respect each other's prowess and uh, they respect the way that the other carries himself, you know. They each see in the, the other uh, a reflection of themselves. And the problem for the young warrior, Wistan, the, the Anglo-Saxon warrior, who is, who's been sent as a kind of a front guard, uh, you know, as, as a kind of a scout, if you like, to pave the way for the coming invasion and massacre, he has a bit of a conscience. And because of his role, he's, he's mingled with uh, his enemies to the extent that he has. He's become, as he sees it, contaminated by compassion. <laughs> uh, he sees that these people, you know, his enemies, are are human, and he he likes aspects of them, and he thinks this is a weakness uh, in himself. Uh, he can never be the warrior he wants to be because uh, he feels some compassion for, for for the enemy, and he takes up a kind of apprentice, a twelve-year-old boy who he thinks he can bring up. Um, in in the properly kind of hateful uh, yes. way, so. as a pure instrument of vengeance. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I suppose you know when I used to watch kind of samurai movies, I I did kind of admire that. You know, two two very skillful warriors who had a kind of a mutual respect, even as they they fought to the so, death. So, so you like your killing to be polite killing? 
I like my killing to be polite, dignified, you know, a recognition of of the other's strength, moral strength as well, and a, an understanding of why the other person is is facing you, you know, in this battle. I also like my scenes of violence to be um, quiet. They're very quiet. Yeah. I like the kind of the hush before the explosion of violence. Uh, it's so funny that you mentioned the samurai movies because there is the final showdown. And you describe this moment of positioning before this clash of swords. And it is exactly like... Toshiro Mifuni going up against a foe, you know, that moment where they circle each other and then boom, mm, and it's right. over really quickly. Yeah, I mean, I was brought up on to, to, to believe that you know, a sword fight was like that. Really fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but it, it's, it's very, very slow for a long time. People stare at each other for a long right. time, and all these big emotions are there. You know, one of us will survive, on, one of us would not, but, you know, the sense of respect usually... And then just one flash of violence, and and it's over. That that's that's what a saw fight was for me, and I remember a kind of a, a shock when I came came to to the west and saw all these like Errol Flynn, exactly. or Douglas Fairbanks, <laughs> where they just hit each other's swords back and forth. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're kind of they're conversing, <laughs> they're and, fencing. Uh, yeah, and while well, they fence, you know, <laughs> yeah. and they go backwards and forwards around around the castle. And, yes, <laughs> and I thought, well, what kind of a sword fight is this? That that the, the the tactic seems to be to kind of incrementally edge your opponent off the, off the edge of <laughs> edge of a cliff or over the side of a a battlement or something like this, and. I thought well, this isn't a real sword fight, and they're they're talking all the time, you know. Um, certainly, in my sword fights in this in this book, yeah, I wanted the classic uh, uh, samurai kind of thing, and I suppose it's quite like the, the the kind of showdowns you see at the end of westerns as well. You know, the, one shot. Yeah, just one shot. You know, people staring at each other, and and then wham, you know, just emotionally, you know, uh, as well. That that that's that's what I like, you know. It, which may cause problems for the people adapting this into a movie because these days movies like to sustain the violence for a very long time and have lots of twists and turns and reversals. <laughs> well, maybe, but um, if, if this is going to be turned into a movie, I'm going to persuade the filmmakers to see some of those great, not so much the Kurosawa films, or maybe the Kurosawa films, you know, the, the end of Sanjuro, yeah. uh, the movie. Um, which one... Is it where, I think it's Mifuni, he's facing off against a foe on a beach, and they're positioning, he's positioning the guy in order to get the sun in the guy's eyes, or to get the guy to shield him from the sun. They're facing each other and going down this beach until the right position, you know, allows him visibility, and then... Oh, I don't, I don't know that one. That's a great, great climactic scene. Right, I don't yeah. know that one. Yeah. Um, I would say that's kind of a, a little bit cheating, you know? Yeah, well... Yeah, Isn't that's it a all bit. Un, yeah, I think that's unsamurai. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's you, very not, not you... like that's out of character for Mifune. I think he would insist on you know equally good conditions for his opponent. Well, yeah. your character uses a horse at one point as a kind of um, as a kind of shield, and uh, you know positions himself very carefully to use the space around him. So that's very much what was happening in a lot of those samurai movies. Mm, yeah, mm, but you'll persuade mm. the filmmaker to do likewise. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd go for the the yeah the, the samurai style of, or or you know I'd make them watch the end of Once Upon a Time in the West, uh -huh, you know, the, yes. the great shootout between uh, Charles Bronson and and Henry Fonda at the end of that, where they stare at each other, 
and have kind of sophisticated memory flashbacks for about 20 minutes before they draw their cards (laughs) with all the Morricone music. Absolutely. (laughs) Well, Leone was definitely influenced by samurai movies, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's a a real kind of uh, symbiotic relationship between the the samurai genre and the Western. I mean, Kurosawa was deeply influenced by Westerns, and then the, the later... Western directors like Leone and Peckinpah are very much influenced by the samurai movies. Tell me about the the voice uh, and the narration of The Buried Giant. It begins with a narrator who is humanized. He, I'm going to say he's he, maybe he's a she, has the classic voice of the storyteller and says I at one or two points and says perhaps this happened. And uh, while we can't be sure of the names of our protagonists, we'll call them Axel and Beatrice. He disappears for a long time. He doesn't come back but once or twice, at least conspicuously. And by the time we're at the end, it's someone else telling the story. I have to kind of confess here that I had a bigger scheme uh, for the I narrator. And in the very final drafts, I guess, you know, after discussions with some people, I, I rein back this this scheme, but it's still there if someone cares to try and kind of tease it out. My original idea was that yes, this was the traditional kind of storyteller, and he was telling something in that old kind of I am telling you a story kind of way. And but it's going to be comforting. It's got to be comforting, but who is the you? This was the question I wanted to pose. You know, He's telling somebody. He keeps telling you, 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 you. Uh, my answer to that question was... Was and and it's it's not your fault or anyone's fault if they don't <laughs> don't realize this because the final book doesn't really make it that clear. My idea was that he was he was addressing an audience of dead children, of slaughtered innocent children, throughout history, who had been murdered in atrocities. And if you look for it, it's kind of there. Yeah, um, there's still a a little thing that that narrator says the very last time he comes back that. That suggests that, but that was the scheme. But I, as I went on into the story, I thought having that dimension too strong would actually unbalance the uh, the actual story itself. You know, mm. the story that as it's unfolding, and also I just thought it, at the beginning, in the earlier passages, it's, it's quite nice to have a kind of tour guide for the, for the for the reader because when you when you when you're asking the reader to plunge into some kind of very unfamiliar world, uh, you can either have the kind of William Gibson approach of just kind of total immersion. You drop the reader in it, and for for about you know uh, several hours, the reader has no idea where he or she is and what most of the words and phrases mean. And then gradually, you know, it, it's like just being dropped in some really strange foreign country. Um, you can do it like that, or you can have this kind of rather friendly tour guide. Indeed. Uh, and so I, I, I kind of opted for that, and that kind of old traditional storytelling voice, but I always had this idea that the uh, the audience, the you, is not the reader. The audience is a, is a, is a, is a room of ghosts, you know, of, wow. or slaughtered children. I certainly picked up that this was the traditional storytelling voice of someone talking to children, and that this was going to at least start out in a with a comforting tone. Uh, for instance, the um, the narrator says very near the beginning, after describing this primitive state of England, <laughs> what wasn't England then, at the time, the British Isles, says, I'm sorry to paint such a picture of our country at that time, but there you are. Okay, so he's talking to a modern-day audience, which has this, this sanitized saccharine vision 
of England is going to be disturbed by a picture of rude, barbaric behavior, right? Mm. But of course, he goes away. I mean, we don't hear that kind of reassurance very much mm. at all later in the book. Uh, but I knew you were up voice, to something. That voice used to come in a little bit more. I took out a couple of passages you know, later on because it it just became a little bit impractical once once the story is f- fully unfolding. But um, yeah, so it's, it's a little bit confused, you know, the, the the role of the different narrators. That there, there are a number of there seems to be three actual narrators, three voices. Yeah, yeah. there's Sir Gawain, yeah, and the, the, and the uh, boatman, the knight, and the boatman at yeah. the end. Yeah, and also um, the when it's third person, um, you know, right. the, the 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 viewpoints, which yes. is quite a lot as well. But in contrast to my earlier books, when I was really talking about when I was trying to explore. Um, the struggle to remember or forget within one individual here because I was trying to talk about that question applied to a society and also to a relationship I I felt I couldn't uh, remain in the first person for this project if it was say told by Axel it would have turned into another one of those books that I'd written in the past it would all be about Axel struggling with his personal memory of you know, when he used to be involved with Arthur's projects and why he left it and the conscience or conscience he had about how he participated and so on. Um, it would have become dominated by the first person vision. And so I think uh, I I was right to not to do that this time. It, it did leave the, you know leave me open to have these other viewpoints and, and try and get a sense of um, this question at the, at the kind of wider level. But uh, maybe it's just inexperience. Uh, <laughs> um, I, as I say, I, I had this idea about that impersonal eye addressing the, the audience of slaughtered children, but it's, uh, it, it's, kind of, it's kind of disappeared a little bit. Why did you hand things over to the boatman in the final chapter? Uh, it just needed to be narrated suddenly from a different perspective. I did actually write that scene, um, you know, remaining with the viewpoint of Axel. And I just felt to get the emotional impact, I just needed I needed to, the viewpoint to just move away from them. That's the paradox often. Sometimes when you've set up the relationship very fully in the reader's mind, um, it's sometimes more powerful to, to get an almost indifferent or almost callous viewpoint on, on the two people you've become quite involved involved with and uh, and I th- I thought that the emotional impact was much better when I um when I looked at the version that was narrated by the boatman mm. um uh, and because as we know the boatman has this kind of melancholy duty and even more melancholy than the traditional one in, in my book because he's not only does he have to ferry people over to probably what is death he keeps getting these kind of couples who who think they have a special a, a kind of reason why they sh- they should be treated differently and so he's got to get them to cooperate but he's got to kind of trick them to so that they that they go over to that island you know and they keep insisting oh we love each other so much you know surely we, you know, we can go over together and he does a little bait and switch on them yeah he is <laughs> <laughs> This is this is his occupational kind of uh, problem that he's got. So he gets quite good at this. But so so everything is seen from that point of point of view. You know? Oh, and it does. <laughs> I got to say, it does increase the poignancy, because not only is there this, and, and you know, folks, obviously this is a spoiler, but there's the pain of the parting, but there's the pain of the deception as well. Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, it's interesting you're talking about, um, you know, why did I switch there? You know, I, I'm here trying to give you a kind of a re- reasoned account of why I preferred one version or another. But here's an, a typical example where I have, I end up with two different versions, you know, one told from the point of view of Axel, one told from the point of view of the boatman, a, a sudden switch to a, to somebody who's, who's a relative stranger to the reader. Uh, why do I choose one rather than the other? Well, I've kind of given you a fairly reasonable account of why, but if I'm really honest about it, it, it's almost like an intuitive decision. And I think this is, this is a very important thing I like to emphasize that the longer I've gone on writing novels, the more I, I appreciate that a lot of the artistic decisions I make are made almost in the, in the way that a musician might decide that, you know, one take of a solo is better than the other take of a solo because I use words and I tend to find myself in quite kind of verbal and articulate and articulated environments. Uh, I've got used to giving kind of an argument back uh, for why I've made each decision. Uh, I've, I got quite convincing and good at that. But um, the truth is, often I do what I do because, as a musician might say, it, it sounds better that mm. way. It's closer to the emotion I wanted to capture. Beyond that, I can't really say. You know, I prefer it that way. It's more beautiful that way. And I, I feel, I've become aware now that as I'm writing longer and longer, so many of my big decisions are made like that. It's, I, it's almost like afterwards, I, I find intellectual reasons to back up those mm, decisions. But, mm. but when I'm writing, you know, why, why does that scene take place uh, at dawn, you know, with the sun kind of coming through the mist, rather than around a campfire at night or something like this? You know, I don't really know. You know, it's because it just feels right to me. It, it's closer to the atmosphere and the emotion I want. And so this is a classic case in point, a very important scene, the final scene, in many ways, you know, the whole book is about bringing the reader to that emotional moment uh, where we end. Um, absolutely crucial. Um, I've written two versions you know, narrated by different people from two different viewpoints. I, I look at them. I'm not really coming out with big reasoned arguments why one is better than the other. I, I remember just looking at it and thinking that, that, that this is the one I want. I, I mean, I could supply a post facto reasoned argument for it as I examine my own reaction to that final scene. Okay, well, let's hear it. Well, having the camera look at them in a sense, I'm going to say camera, it's a narrator who's unsympathetic. It's a narrator who doesn't know them and doesn't really care about them at all. Like having the camera pull away really makes their singularity, their isolation, their frailty, our frailty as human beings you know, it just brings it into relief so powerfully. The loneliness of the predicament. Even the narrator's not on their side. Mm -hmm. I can imagine it being much less powerful if Mm. you narrated it differently. Yeah, I I think you're absolutely right. And they suddenly suddenly become small. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah, we feel a touch of the indifference of fate when we see it from the point of view of of the boatman who sees many, many such people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, th- 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 these are just small lives, one, one among many. Yeah, if we look at it enough, we can we can always come out with these things. Just as I'm sure that saxophonist who says, you know, 
take two is much better than take take one could probably analyze it eventually after the fact to say right. you know, it's, it's because i hit a, you know, that's a the minor ninth there you know that note against against the uh the diminished chord you know, there's a tension that he could probably analyze it like that but i suppose you know when you're in the act of creation i mean um I, I find I'm, I'm going on instinct more and more, mm. you know. Um, and I'm sure you're absolutely right. Both things are right, you know. Both explanations are correct, you know, I guess. But uh, I don't think I analyzed it like that at the right. time. It, I just thought, that, you know, that's closer to what I want. You know, that's the feeling I want. So when you give uh, free reign to your instincts and produce something that's not so calculated, and then you get to look at it, do you discover things that you didn't know already? And have you learned something? Has this book revealed something to you about these themes that are so important to you? I think so. I, I, I do feel with this book I have made some sort of a, a, a step, well, if not forward, at least sideways, you know, uh, because I think uh, I've been focused so much on, on, on memory and, and self-deception at the individual level for so long I think this has certainly opened some doors for me, but it's opened a lot of new questions up as well. You know, those questions we were asking earlier, um, what exactly are the memory banks for a nation or, or even for a relationship? It's not so obvious. You know, um, it's a much more complicated thing. And what interests me is emotionally, are there important differences between the way, say, a nation remembers and forgets and the way a couple or, or, or an individual remembers and forgets? What I mean by emotion, I mean, just take, to take one example, let's look at a nation like Germany, you know, it just goes on and on and on and on. It can make the most, take the most hideous turns, but because a new generation comes along, it can learn from its mistakes in a sense and, and become a fantastic, wonderful, you know, liberal democracy. So there's something triumphant about that, but just contrast that with, say, just one individual who happened to live through that time you know, of the Second World War and is watching the new Germany emerge afterwards. That person's life is probably too short to have another chance as the nation around him is having. So there's a kind of a poignance about that. At the individual level, remembering and forgetting has different implications because you, know, you don't usually there's no second chance you know, that's your life you know, it's what you remember is what you had and the chances are you're not going to have very much else to remember you're going to have to come to terms with you know who you are and what you did and that's all there is whereas maybe a nation doesn't have to emotionally invest in quite that way it can just kind of roll on and on and on and on so so the memories mean something different to a nation it's important to remember these things because it determines where the nation may go next, but it doesn't maybe carry the same poignance of thinking, well, well that was it, that was my throw of the dice. So that that's interesting. The emotional contrast is interesting. So, you know, it, it might be interesting to think about the relationship between uh, two characters. You know, maybe one of them is immortal for some kind of reason. You know, maybe one of them is something like a vampire or some creature that... Can, can go on for, uh, yeah. for yeah and the contrast between that <laughs> yeah. that person and the person who, who like you and me just only has one life um caught up in the history of a particular nation you know that that would highlight for instance the the emotional contrast between the way 
you know, what the stakes are in remembering and forgetting for, for a nation and for an individual. But I think there are many, many interesting contrasts you know, to be explored. I don't think it's an easy analogy to take take an individual and say, oh, this individual's struggle with memory stands for the whole nation's mm. struggle. You know, I think there are, there are very important political and emotional differences in, in those two kinds of remembering. Do you think uh, another novel is slowly but surely taking shape right now? Um, I don't know about the surely, but, <laughs> <laughs> but another novel. <laughs> but usually by the time I finish the novel, um, that novel itself has opened a lot of interesting doors and raised a lot of interesting questions that the novel itself wasn't equipped to explore. I have a kind of a, a, a number of things that I start to think about, you know, how, all right, so how, you know, how would I explore that, you know? Uh, I, I suppose I've just said something there that is, is, suggests a possibility, for instance, of, of something to look at, but whether they'll end up actually in a, in a novel or not, I don't know. But, but yeah, I, I work in this way. I, my ideas start, you know, as questions like that. The relationships come next, and uh, then I start to worry right at the end about things like setting and genre, <laughs> and whether it's a fantasy or a sci-fi or a piece of social realism. That comes much, much later. Well, I hope whatever eventuates, we get a chance to talk about it. Thank you so much, Ish. Well, thank you. It's fantastic to talk to you again. Kazuo Ishiguro's new book is The Buried Giant. And uh, by the way, I had to look up that vaguely remembered sword fight that I mentioned with Toshiro Mifuni on the beach with the sun, the rising sun, in fact. It's the uh, climactic scene from Samurai 3, the last installment of Hiroshi Inagaki's Samurai Trilogy, which won the Oscar for the Best Foreign Film in 1956. I'm Robert Polly. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. We are online at 7thAvenueProject.com. And if you'd like to listen online, I suggest you subscribe on iTunes. And while there, uh, if so inclined, leave us some stars and or a review. That would help the show. Thanks very much, and I'll be back next week. <laughs>